Does the Bible come with an invisible sticker that says, do not tamper with? Or do we have the freedom to work creatively with the Bible's form? This is the Bible Reset Podcast, brought to you by the Institute for Bible Reading. today with my friends and my colleagues, Glenn Powell and uh, Alex Goodwin. And uh, if you've been a regular uh, listener to the Bible Reset, you know we've been on a bit of a hiatus, but we're back for a, uh, a three-part series specifically to uh, introduce a, a new book that's coming out uh, by Alex. and. Um, we're we're just thrilled to be able to to uh, use the podcast to uh, introduce that, and um, it actually is releasing what well, Alex within the next two weeks or so. Yeah, we're re- we're recording this on October sixteenth, and it releases tomorrow, the seventeenth. Yeah. Well, imagine that. <laughs> yep, crazy. So yeah, th- this was a um, the the idea of a new book. I think was something that we began kicking around maybe three years ago. And we, we felt like we wanted a complimentary book to, uh, to Glenn's uh, excellent book, Saving the Bible from Ourselves. And we went through a process to, uh, to decide who on our team, team would write it. And, um, you know, it was a little more sophisticated than casting lots, but we, <laughs> we batted it around and we consulted with our, our good friend uh, in Colorado Springs, John Sloan, who is our kind of designated uh, publishing guru. And in time, it became clear that Alex should be the, the designated writer. And it became clear early on that we'd pick the right, the right person. We found out that Alex was a disciplined writer. Um, that he didn't write when he felt like it. He would get up early every morning, <laughs> every morning and write. And uh, and then we started to see the early drafts and um, it became just abundantly clear that Alex had a, uh, a lucid pen to go along with his uh, with his keen intellect. So this this feels kind of like we're giving birth here. And I think individually for Alex, but but even for those of us um at at IFBR um collectively and so we're we're excited to do this you know i'm not going to say it's a groundbreaking book like everybody says but i will say this that it does break some new ground and um and it provides some some i think really amazing nuance to some topics that are being discussed and um so anyhow alex congratulations to you and um, we're thrilled to do this uh, this three week uh, launch podcast together. Yeah, thanks. It's it's fun to be what on the other other side of the microphone, being kind of interviewed <laughs> on the right. podcast. And uh, I was just looking back through my through my pictures because I was pretty sure we had that launch meeting with John Sloan um, around this time of year. And lo and behold, it was October twenty second of twenty nineteen. And so almost almost four years to the day that we had that launch party, spent a couple of years writing, and then everybody knows the publishing process and the editing process and process of getting everything ready and, and out the door takes a little while. But it's it's been a fun, fun, amazing journey to to get this book out there. That's so excellent, Alex. And it's I mean, we're so excited for you 
And as an institute, it's great for us to have something new and fresh to put out to people about our position on Bible reading and and what we think makes for a great experience with the Bible. And just by way of introduction, I think it's worth just quickly mentioning, we've always thought of ourselves since we started this little organization by ourselves a number of years ago that we wanted to be doers, right? Produce things that actually help people have experiences, not just idea people who talk about good Bible reading. But I think it's important that both parts of that have been part of our DNA from the start, that we do want to publish our ideas um, and get the information out there about what we think makes for a great Bible experience and receiving the gift that the scriptures are. But we also want to be doers. We we want to put those ideas into practice. And so your book is a really important part of putting the groundwork and the statement out there about what we think the content, the ideas that we've we've been wrestling with for all these years and and share them with other people to go along with the practical things that we offer to people in terms of real Bible experiences. So this is an important marker for us as an organization. Yeah, yeah, it, re- it really is. And, um, you know, one of the things that we were delighted with and surprised with was that Publishers Weekly decided to feature it. And mm, yes, um, those of those of us who who have lived in the publishing world know that, you know, out of the thousands and thousands of books that get launched and published every year, there's a very limited space. And so to be featured at pub- in Publishers Weekly at, at age 33, you know, I, I might add. Right. So, I mean, that's another element there is that uh, I do think uh, Alex doesn't, you know, write like he's trendy or something, but I do think his, his younger voice comes through and mm. that's an important, you know, part of our our mission as the Institute as well. So anyhow, congratulations all the way around, um, Alex. And, um, and this is fun. You know, before we dive in, um, let, let's talk a little bit about the title, uh, because it may sound like we're stuttering. This is, you know, the Bible mm-hmm. Reset podcast, talk to you and talk, to talk to you about the, the, the Bible Reset book and yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> the, the Bible Reset. And um, so, uh, Resetting, though, seems to be in in IFBR's, you know, DNA. And so uh, can you kind of talk to us about the the driving philosophy behind this? Sure. So, yeah, I think you're exactly right. We went through a similar process when we were thinking about what to call this podcast, right? And what's what's a kind of good punchy title that gets across pretty quickly what we're trying to do with the Bible? And um, similarly with the publisher, which is which is Nav Press, they they floated some ideas for a p- potential title, and I just kept coming back to this word reset because it's not something that you see next to the word Bible very often. Like the Bible is an established thing; it has a lot of history, it has a lot of kind of um, expectations and norms built up around it. Like reset is a pretty big overhaul, right? You think about your computer or your cell phone or something when it's acting up. What's the first thing people tell you to do? Well, did you did you reset it? Did you turn it off and on again and kind of let it clear out some of the stuff that's futzing with it and causing it to to not work as well? And so I think that is a good word for for what we're trying to do in a lot of ways. We're not just introducing some trendy new 
uh, you know, Bible reading tips to, to counteract the Bible's, uh, you know, perceived shortcomings, I guess I'd say, we're actually getting back in a lot of ways to more of what the Bible was originally intended to be for people. And so I, I just feel like the word reset really captures that well. So Alex, what do you think is not working with the Bible and why isn't it working? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I'll, I'll state right up front, less people, you know, veer off the road or whatever. It's not like the Bible itself. Like, Hey, God, God, I, I would, you know, have these, um, critiques of, of your work with the Bible. <laughs> um, it's more the things that have been built up around it over recent centuries mm. and recent decades. Um, you know, we'll, we'll be diving into the physical format of the Bible, something that we've come to t- take for granted about the Bible. Uh, you know, norms, practices, habits, expectations, and then even like the kind of meta framework that we use when we think about the Bible. What's it actually for? What, what's it supposed to be doing in our lives? And how does it, what role does it play in our lives? All those things I think need a little bit of reexamination and then potentially some, some new pathways to, to a more kind of fresh and flourishing experience with the Bible. Sounds like culture making to use Andy Crouch's term, mm-hmm. but with the Bible this time. Yeah. And it's not a thing we often think of. I think you're so right on to say it's just a thing we take for granted. Um, not realizing that Paul Caminetti, who was the publisher of the best-selling Bible, English language Bible in the world, and myself in the nonprofit realm was a Bible publisher, that Publishers make decisions every day about what the Bible is going to be for people. And it's not like it came with a book of instructions alongside it to say, this is how you publish it, and this is what you're allowed to do with it. Um, Publishers just decide. We have freedom. We've been given the sacred writings, but what form they take has been up to people throughout the whole history of the church. So you're calling us, if I hear you right, you're calling us to say, let's be a little more self-aware about what we are doing in presenting the Bible to people. Is that right? Absolutely. You know, I think to to piggyback off your Andy Crouch comment, he says something in his book, Culture Making, like God gave us eggs and we make omelets out of them. Like God mm-hmm. gives us raw <laughs> things, raw materials for things. And in a lot of ways, he gave us the scriptures and they've taken a lot of different forms throughout the the centuries and the years. Sometimes they were oral at first. They were stories told around fires. And eventually, you know, through different iterations, they've become they've become pixels on our smartphones. Like we do different things with the Bible and we have the power to do those things. Um, and not only from like a whatever Bible publishing standpoint, but kind of like a cultural standpoint. What are the what are the normalized ways that we use Bible the Bible in our culture? All of these things need to be kind of reexamined a little bit. Mm. Yeah, and you know if you're if you're going back to to the t- the choice of the title again, um, re- resets aren't something that we do kind of just for the heck of it. Yeah. Um, a, a reset is. Um, something that we do because something is clearly not working, that Mm. something is broken or it is working, but it's not working as well as it could. And, you know, the first chapter of, of uh, your book, um, 
is entitled, you know, we can do better. Um, and, you know, <laughs> it was kind of interesting, a, a book about the Bible, you wove in a story about Elon Musk. <laughs> um, but, but, you know, um, that, that, that is, that is part of a conviction, right? That, that we have and that you have that the reset needs to happen because um, things things are, are are broken about the current system, and and not only are they broken, but there is now this pretty remarkable data hmm. that is that is pointing to that 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 uh, very few people are talking about. Yes. Yes, absolutely. I mean, there's there's anecdotal data that all of us have encountered from people that we know and strangers that we've met who have, who have talked about their experience with the Bible. Uh, there's, of course, bigger picture data like the state of the Bible reports. I think there's some some hard new statistics from that that have come out in the last year or two. Um, and then, you know, for me, like I'm not a Bible scholar, like in a, in a lot of ways, this book was written to myself 10 years ago. You know, I grew up in the mm, church. Wow. I'd been around the Bible my whole life and it was just a struggle. Like I, I didn't get a whole lot out of it when I tried to read it. And so in, in a lot of ways, I wrote this book to tell people, hey, my journey can also be your journey towards the Bible, towards understanding the different ways that we've been set up to fail with it. Unintentionally, of course, through through different things that we've just inherited um, and to see that there's a, a way out of the woods. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah that's amazing. Oh, go ahead, Paul. Well, I, I was just going to say you, you know, th there is actually some kind of um, empirical data, some new data that, that uh, came out from um, state of the Bible and I'll, I'll read it word for word. Um, it says roughly uh, 26 million people mostly or completely stopped reading the Bible this past year, that would be 2022. It is the single steepest decline um, on record. Yeah. Ouch. Like we've got all these millions of Bibles out there and yet there's some missing ingredients, it seems like in the recipe. Like it's not just have Bible equals flourishing relationship with the Bible. No. Like there's there's some things that have gotten out of whack, I would say. Yeah. And, and the data says that people are are are, are moving beyond frustration. Mm. Um, it's not like I'm frustrated, but I, you know, I know that this is a, a, an important part of the Christian religion. So I'm going to continue to tough it out. Yep. Uh, there are people that are walking away. Absolutely. I suppose there are, you know, theoretically lots of reasons we could think of why Bible reading is down. I mean, reading in general, we know is down. Um, it's harder to get people to read books these days in general. There are cultural things uh, about the Christian faith and um, kind of, you know, critiques of it, all that sort of thing. But Alex, in your book, it seems like you zeroed in um, in the first part of your book about a very particular thing about the Bible, and that is the form mm -hmm. that it takes. And it's interesting when you think about it, it's something you almost never hear about in Bible reading advice columns, if you will, all these books and articles, um, you know, presentations by people about um, good ways to read the Bible, why you should read the Bible. The form is just a thing that does not come up. But yet you start off by saying that 
aspiring Bible readers are set up to fail, in your words, as soon as they open the Bible's pages because of the format that they face. Um, I love this other phrase you used, um, the clutter in the Bible makes reading it a literary triathlon marathon. Um, we've talked a bit in the past about format, but why did you choose to start your book with that problem? And what do you think the problem is? Yeah, so just to zoom out for a second, the book is kind of based based or built on three kind of main sections. So the first section is all about the format. Second for, section is all about the habits and practices that have kind of been normalized. And then the third section is all about the the grand narrative of scripture of scripture, which is something I think a lot of people need to rediscover or discover for the first time, um, and and how that can kind of be the framework that we that we think of the Bible as. So so part one, I start with form uh, because everybody has opened up their Bible and been greeted with a format that is just difficult. Like it's it's hard to read. I think we've gotten used to it as Christians, and we just say, hey. Yeah, that's what a Bible is supposed to look like. Like we, it's supposed to have mm. numbers all over the page and notes and section headings and cross references. And, you know, if you're really uh, serious and you've got a study Bible, like call outs all over the place with extra context and all this different stuff. But it's not a format that is meant for reading, right? It's a format that's good for a lot of other things. It's a format that's good for finding things quickly or digging in and getting extra information or seeing how one passage might relate to another passage somewhere else in the Bible through cross references. Like it can be helpful for all those different things, but those are like reference study tools. Right. But for most people, like that's mm. the only Bible they have. And so when they just want to sit down and read, it's a, it's a format that's full of distraction. Yeah. I love the, I was just going to say, you have a quote about that, Alex, and I just love it. Um, I think it's the beginning of one of your chapters where, where you say, if you were to walk around your house and thumb through random books on bookshelves and tables, the odds are that all of them would be more readable than your Bible. Hmm. I mean, that's just a striking thing. Why, why should the Bible be the hardest book in your house to read? Yeah. Um, I mean, it's it's almost like we think, well, reading isn't really the thing to do with the Bible. We've just kind of become addicted to doing other things with the Bible, using it in particular ways, but not reading. So mm -hmm. you're connecting reading with the Bible in a way that I think is fresh and new for most people. Yeah. Yeah, there's there's a story. Paul can probably tell it better than me because you heard it firsthand of this high school student, you know, went to a Christian school, I'm sure brought up in the church. And he says, when he opens up a Bible, he just feels tense. Like, what am I supposed to do first? Like, can I, do I read the footnotes as I come across them? Can I turn the page before I've read everything? Like, it's this kind of TMI, too much information experience for a lot of people. And mm. it's not something that you just feel comfortable opening and reading. Yeah. I mean, there's so many, so many testimonials that we've heard. Uh, the three of us have a friend uh, a mutual friend in Colorado Springs who is is fairly well known for speaking her mind, but she told us the story that her her first, I think, real encounter with the Bible was when she was a young adult and she opened it up and she her one word response was ghastly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean and, it's no, yeah. no, keep going. I I was just gonna say like the 
people think that they're kind of immune to the format, I would say. Like, oh yeah, I just kind of ignore all that stuff. And, you know, I I read past it and it doesn't bother me. It's like, you know, signs on the side of the highway, sort of like, yeah, you can pay attention to it if you want, but most of the time you can just ignore it. Um, but it's not until they're introduced to something different where they realize everything, the the way that all that stuff was impacting them all along. Like format uh, gives your brain subtle clues about what you're supposed to do with with mm, the text on wow. the page. And when yeah. it looks like a textbook or it looks like a dictionary, you're going to treat it like a textbook or a dictionary. Yeah. Yeah, I, I had a thought recently because I have the same thing. You know, I'll go around and uh, present this to churches and uh, speak at denominational meetings and so forth. And occasionally someone will come up to me and, and they'll say, you know, you're you're you know, you're making much ado about nothing. These are just numbers. And it, it dawned on me this this actual language that, that, that they are numbers, but they're more than numbers. They're an operating system. Mm. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. You know, in, in, in the same way that our computers have, you know, what Mac Mac OS or Windows or something like that. Yep. Um, those numbers um, are a system that determine how we read, which is usually kind of a start and stop proposition, how much we read. I came to the end of a chapter there need to stop reading yeah. um, how, how we, how we interpret. Yeah, it, it is. It is, it is truly an operating system. And if we wanted to continue with that same analogy, we could say it's a, a very antiquated <laughs> operating system that clearly hasn't been working for the last, you know, 500 years, but um, yeah, we're, we're, we can do better. Yeah. Yeah. And I think a big component of that, like you just mentioned, 500 years was learning the history of how all this stuff came about. And this, you know, in my journey is all Glenn's fault. Like he taught me the whole history <laughs> of, of the Bible and the development of what we call internally the modern reference Bible over centuries and centuries. Like, you know, the chapter system was invented in the 1200s by a scholar who needed a way to reference chunks of books for his commentary. Like he couldn't just say, hey, you know, like halfway through Romans, like this is what I have to say about that. He needed a, a numbering system to kind of direct people towards a general area of a book. And then, you know, 300 years later, there was another scholar who um who needed even more specificity because he was writing a concordance. And so he needed to direct people to a very hyper-specific portion of scripture, like one, one or two sentences so that they could find the word that he was talking about in his concordance. And like, great. That's, that totally makes sense. <laughs> you need to direct people there. But at yeah. some point those two things came together and then they got standardized as like, you cannot have a Bible without these two things in them. And I think that's been in a lot of ways to our detriment. Wow, it's so interesting because what you just mentioned, I mean, those are both specifically reference tools. Yeah. Right. It's not like somebody sat down and said, oh, what would be really great to help people read the Bible better? Right. I'm going to insert these numbers, kind of big numbers and small numbers, put them in certain places. Like that wasn't the idea. It was very specific and it was a worthy reason yeah. in each of those cases for what they were trying to produce 
But the big thing was, you know, and this it's interesting, historically, this all happened around the time of the printing press. So people started getting their own Bibles for the very first time, right as the chapter and verse system came into its own. And like you said, Paul, it's an operating system. So the first Bible that was generally available, not hand copied and just used in churches, generally available to the public, had the chapter and verse operating system in it. And so it turned people, I think without even realizing it, the, the Bible that they would get for their family for the very first time was a reference book tool. And um, it shouldn't be surprising then, right, that we've moved away from reading and we primarily use the Bible for referencing things. Absolutely. Yeah, and I, I think, you know, we, we have to add that that um, this isn't something that that people have thought a great deal about. It's just been kind of a foregone, foregone conclusion that this is that this is what uh, what the Bible is. And, um, you know, the decisions that were made were were really made by individuals. Hmm. Um, oftentimes, these kinds of decisions in church history were made by councils <laughs> where people right. got together and and uh, debated and fought and you know had had many discussions uh but here were here were two individuals that just in a moment of history um created some things they were cultural artifacts they have human fingerprints all over them uh, and a lot of people think that those that the numbers are actually god's fingerprints and we need to disabuse anybody's mind right. of that Right. Uh, along with the order of the books that those were that that, that has God's fingers fingerprints on it as well. Maybe we'll get to that um, in, in a minute. But this thing that has been so far reaching now, um, this kind of exoskeleton, I think you call it, Alex, a skeleton outside the body. Has um, really dominated um, our practices around the Bible. Mm hmm. Yeah, and we don't want to get our ahead of ourselves because we're going to talk about the practices in, in part two yes. of this, this series. But it does. I mean, you you get welcomed to do certain things with the Bible based off of the formatting decisions that, that have been made. And I think, um, you know, this isn't to say, hey, all chapter and verse Bibles need to go away forever and we need to revert back to this other way of doing things like they can. They still have a place in this ecosystem for finding things quickly for. You know, if you need to do more intense study on a on a specific passage, it can be really helpful to have footnotes mm -hmm. and call outs with, you know, extra context, that sort of stuff. But to have it as the only option for people, I think, is uh, a shortcoming. Yeah, it's interesting. Different kinds of tools for different kinds of things. Right. And I think like when I was learning, I was a framer. I built houses back in the day. And when I was just, you know, an apprentice and learning the basics of the tools, there were different kinds of saws for different kinds of reasons. And if you use the wrong saw to, to do, it's meant for cutting two by fours and you're using it for really fine trim work, you're just going to splinter it up and ruin it. Hmm. And I think that's the same thing that you're talking about, Alex, with the Bible is like, it's not that we're against chapter and verses per se, or chapter and verse Bibles, but they lead you to use the Bible a certain way is what I read in your book. And that, you know, if we had a different format, 
um, without getting into the specifics of practices yet. It just points us in a different direction to do something different with the book. And I think, again, it's your book helps us step back, which is a thing we don't always do. So many things are taken for granted. But if we step back, you know, and read what you're saying about what format does, what it currently is, how we got it, and what a new one might look like, um, it's that kind of stepping back and getting the bigger perspective that can really help Bible readers today. And I, I think that's that's the first gift that your book is giving us is that step back. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and one, you know, small, maybe not small example, but one more example, I guess I'll say is is two columns. Right. It's that's another thing that mm. we don't think about as much. And it was originally put in there to save on paper, right? Because you can fit more content on a page with two columns than with one. But I, I think in my own experience, it just makes every single sort of literature kind of look the same, right? Like whether you're reading narrative mm -hmm. or poetry or prophecy or or whatever, it, it looks pretty similar, I would say, between Romans and Proverbs or something. Um, and then when you get a get back into the uh the single column there's so much stuff with hebrew poetry and indentation and two line relationships between those uh between the two lines of a psalm or or whatever that gets all bungled up when you have it in two columns because whole lines of poetry don't fit in one column and then the indentation gets all messed up so there's there's just so much richness to be had by making some of these publishing decisions and adjustments and for I would say the the public or the consumers to be asking for them and to be wanting mm. a, a Bible that's made for reading and for engaging with the literature and on, on its own terms. Mm. Well, this is good. Um, I'm going to sum it up by two lines from your book, Alex. <laughs> and, unless you guys have more to say about chapters and verses, and and uh, already, Glenn, I heard a podcast that you were on a while back, and you were accused of going to war with chapters and verses. So um, it's all about the right tool for the right purpose. Yeah. And I think it's we've just left reading off the agenda. And we've made referencing as if it's the only game in town with yeah. the Bible. Yeah. And I'll just say but, one one final thing before you sum it up, Paul, which is like, we're so prone to distraction anyway, right? So mm, people these days. Cell well, phones, well, I'm, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get to that. Okay. I'm get to that. Okay. <laughs> this was, this was my segue. Don't okay. rob me of my segue okay. into, into this next, next part here. Um, but I, I love the way you put it. So the, the scholar that gave us um, chapters was, was uh, Stephen Langdon, I think was his name. And then uh, the scholar that gave us verses was Robert, Robert SDN. And Alex, you said, Langdon added zip codes and the SDN added street addresses. Wow. And then, yeah. and then in summary, to quote uh, Joni Mitchell, they paved paradise and put up a parking lot. Yep. Yep. Yeah. And, you know, because of my generation, I thought that was by the counting crows. Um, but I originally <laughs> I realized that they, that they uh, covered no, so I, it's I it's our generation credit. that yep. came up with that, not yours. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So I had to give her proper credit. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. So so let let's say this though that um when this happened um that this was a bit of a bombshell. Mm. Um the the adding of chapters and verses and even in in the day, you know, 
1300s, I think um, first numbers came in the 1600s, there were, were scholars and critics who said, no, no, no. Uh, when you change the form of something, you change the essence of it. And so there were there were early warnings and scoldings that took place then, but they obviously fell on deaf ears. Yeah. Now, here we are um, about 500 years later, though, and now the consequences of those numbers and those mental distractions are of greater kind consequence than maybe they've ever been before. And that's your cue now, Alex, to talk about uh, why, why in this existential moment, this is such a serious thing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, clearly our listeners can probably tell we could go on about this all day. Um, but I think there's there's just something to be said about like, hey, that's interesting that uh, what Charles Dickens and Tolkien and Lewis and all these writers throughout the centuries didn't say, you know, the Bible had a pretty good idea with chopping everything up into all these bite-sized pieces and adding notes and adding cross-references. And maybe I should do that in my book. Like nobody's <laughs> done that, right? Right, so right. It's kind of been this like unanimous decision that uh, those quote-unquote innovations aren't good for the actual reading reading experience. And I think it's mm. highlighted and, you know, super emphasized today when so many people are so prone to just to distraction anyway, right? Like we're all on social media. We're all, we've all got cell phones and text messages and emails coming in all the time. Like our brain is always looking for that, um, you know, other piece of information to zip to. And our, our modern Bibles don't take any sort of stand against that. Right. It's all like distraction all over the page. And even, you know, with the internet today, like it just kind of supercharged it, right? You can look up 15 verses for encouragement in 10 seconds and, you know, skip the middleman of actually reading a whole book on its own. And so I think there's just been all this buildup of distraction and encouragement of searching and finding and zipping around. And, you know, in, in his book, uh, The Shallows, Nicholas Carr says something along the lines of, I used to be a scuba diver in a sea of words, and now I just zip across the top on a jet ski. And I feel like that's kind of what people are prone mm. to do. And the Bible, the modern version of the Bible doesn't counteract that at all. I would say it it encourages it. It's so interesting that that book, which is amazing in its own right. So good. I mean, that's it is so good. Um, he says that, I mean, he makes the claim that the when our brain gets used to that kind of distractions all the time that it actually gets physically rewired and it craves more distraction mm. so it has a harder time like physically it's harder once your brain gets used to that something always fresh new something different a distraction it has a harder time actually focusing and concentrating on something for a longer period of time and like people talk about get lost in a book or getting swallowed up by a book or a story that's getting harder and harder to do. And, and what you say is look, a Bible that's built in small pieces that can be bite-sized and easily accessed that just feeds this problem of being unable to, to go deep, to hold our attention over the length of a story or a song or a letter 
which is what the Bible's actually made up of. So yep. thanks for referencing that book because it's part of a bigger cultural problem, but it's come right into the Bible itself. Yep. Yeah, I think he makes I think he makes the point that um with with the advent of the printing press, which then obviously led to you know, books that the public could read, that that gave birth to a a uh, kind of a, a cultural revolution that we call the literary mind, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That, that the literary mind was birthed. And now people had the ability to be more attentive, you know, to things than they had been before. And they were able to step outside, you know, the field that they worked in or the village that they worked in into new new worlds. and. Uh, he makes he makes the point that the the advent of the internet is going to bring about a far more reaching revolution mm-hmm. um, than than the printing press did, and it's it it is introducing us. It's taken us from the literary mind to the distracted mind. That that is the new state of the average mind, and the Bible again plays right into that. You 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 um, reference uh, Marshall McClu- Mc, McLuhan's book um, to or the the statement the medium is the message, mm-hmm. and um, you talk specifically how McLuhan talks. Uh, there are certain there are certain changes, but the the greatest changes are are ones that that shape people's minds and shape their practices. Um, and you, you, he talks about the mechanical pl- clock. I, unpack that because I, th- I think there's there's an interesting parallel here. Yeah, well, that that's also from Nicholas Carr's book, uh, The Shallows, and but it lines up very well with with McLuhan's statement that the medium is the message. And you know, this could be a whole other deep dive, but basically, he mm-hmm. says uh, in a lot of instances, some of the technologies that we create, we think of them as like, hey, I'm kind of this neutral entity. And I'm going to create this thing and I will use it for my purposes and it'll have no impact on me. And he says that that can't be further from the truth. And he he uses the mechanical clock as an example. So think about before we had clocks, we had, you know, sundials and obelisks and some other like timekeeping measurements, but nothing quite as um, well, mechanical and, and kind of exacting as as the mechanical clock. And so most people like hey, you got up when the sun came up and you went to bed when the sun went down and you ate when you were hungry and you were just kind of like more tied to agrarian rhythms and natural, uh, yeah, natural rhythms of the day, those sorts of things. But then the mechanical clock comes around and, you know, of course it's brought us a number of benefits. Like we we can schedule things for a certain time and we know, you know, it takes two hours to get from point A to point B or whatever. Like there's lots of um, benefits that it's brought, but what has it kind of turned us into also? Like we have these tightly packed calendars because we know how long certain things are going to take. And we've put, become this kind of mechanical culture in some ways, right? Where everything's scheduled and time is this commodified resource in some ways. And like... What have we lost with that, I think, is a question that's mm. worth pondering. And it's it's an instance of we invented something. It's done us some good, but it's also just shaped how we operate, not only as individuals, but as societies. And I think there's a lot of parallels between 
that sort of thing and the modern Bible. Like, hey, it's done some good for us. It's allowed scholars to collaborate on things more easily because they can just, you know, reference certain passages, that sort of thing. Um, but what is it? How's it shaped what we think the Bible is and what we're supposed to be doing with it? Okay, Alex. So I suppose someone could be listening to this and say, okay, I'm aware now of chapters and verses as a thing that is an operating system laid over the Bible. And I wasn't really thinking that way before. So I guess what I have to do is just try to read against the grain of the modern format of the Bible and just be more aware that it's trying to make me think in little bits and stop signs with chapters. And I can just read over them and try to have a better reading experience. But that's not what you say in your book. Mm. You say there's a better way to go than simply trying to read against the grain of the modern format. So tell us about that. Yeah. Yeah, that would be rough if we just said, hey, here's all the ways that the the modern Bible makes things harder. And good luck. I guess it's time to like up your uh, up your effort in this whole thing and just try to go against this friction and go against the grain. Um, but there's a different way to do it. And this this is actually how I got started in all this work. Right. So so chapter one, I talk about my own struggle with scripture, the fact that I had gone to it in a time of need for guidance or encouragement or something and that. I just couldn't get anything out of it. And it wasn't until somebody, a, a mutual friend of Glenn's and mine said, hey, you've got a marketing degree. You want to get in, into ministry, figure out how to get this sort of Bible into as many hands as possible. And <laughs> I opened it up and there were no numbers. Everything was in single column. There were no footnotes. Like it was an early edition of a reader's Bible that Glenn created, you know, what, 10 plus years ago at this point. And I took it home and I started in Genesis one and well, what would be Genesis one? I guess there was no numbers. Uh, <laughs> That's right. <laughs> started there, And I just read and, you know, 20, 25 pages later, I was like, wow, that actually wasn't torture. Like <laughs> that was fine. Like everything flowed, everything was good. And so there's a way to shape Bibles that uh, does away with all of the modern additives, keeps all of the biblical text in there, of course, but just goes and highlights its natural literary functions. And, you know, we'll get into this divides books up by their their natural literary breaks. And, you know, you don't have to just take all the numbers out. And it's kind of this anarchy Bible, where you just have like, words <laughs> wherever or, you know, one single column wall of words with no no way to to divide it up or structure it or anything like that. There's there's a different way to do it. Well, I noticed in what you just said that you keep using the word natural. Yeah. So you're not saying we can impose a better system on the Bible. You're saying that somehow there's something inherent, something natural in the Bible itself that can be shown in a new kind of format that we're mm. actually finding what's really there rather than just saying, well, we have a better system. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I think, Glenn, this might be an interesting time for you to talk about sort of the the transition space that you went through in creating a, a Bible without chapters and verses. So, you know, you had this period where you took all the chapters and verses out, but you hadn't gotten to more of a natural structure place yet because we hadn't met this character in our story yet who would help with that. Right. Can you just like kind of talk through that moment? 
Yeah, yeah. So just very briefly, um, we knew there was a problem with the Bible. I mean, we we were selling Bibles hand over fist. It's like it couldn't be better, right, in terms of Bible publishing. But then I became aware of the researches that people had Bibles but weren't reading them. So we were exploring ways to make the Bible more readable. And we thought, well, this whole system, we did a, a history on the, the you know, what how the Bible became the book that it is. Realized we had the freedom to take out chapters and verses because people had put them in. Publishers had put them in, not like a church council, like Paul mentioned. Um, but then we didn't know what to do. So we thought, we're just going to randomly create our own new chapters, like a better chapter system. And right, single column is easier to read. And that's about all we could come up with. So we faced the problem of what do you do with a Bible where, where the format has been deconstructed, but you don't know yet what the new format is supposed to be. And I can tell you that um, someone who is now a senior fellow at the Institute, um, also, his name is Chris Smith. He had written a book called The Bible Without Chapters and Verses. And luckily, he had both um, kind of a lot of Bible in his academic training, but also a lot of literary training, um, all the way up to the PhD level. And he said, well, you know, there are literary structures within the Bible itself, and all you have to do is show them. And I was unaware of most of these, and it was based on reading the Bible as ancient literature and finding what's already there. And so that was a revolutionary break in our Bible publishing, where we thought, well, besides just taking out the problem that turns it into a reference book, um, how do we make it an actually great reading book that honors what the Bible really has within it? And that's when we discovered letters have forms, um, stories have, have ways of showing their natural literary breaks, Poetry is broken up into stanzas naturally in the Hebrew Bible. There were just, it was literature all over the place. And so it was a rediscovery of the literature of the Bible and just honoring that, not by inserting numbers, but by just formatting it with white space, single column, seeing what's really there. So all of it looked like the literature it really was. And that was a huge moment. And it's because of the gift of who Chris Smith was and what he brought to the table. So the kind of the, the big hairy vision, though, Alex, is, as I understand it, and we'll, we'll just touch on this and then we should should probably wrap this up. But we're, we're talking about somewhat kind of micro changes. Um, well, they're not really micro changes. They're significant changes, removing chapters and verses and replacing them with with an inherent literary structure and, and doing things like that. But we're really talking about a bigger whole, which would be to create a whole new category mm -hmm. of Bibles, right? Yes. And um, in, in which the form serves the Bible's original form and its original mission. Yep, absolutely. And and one of the phrases that I use in the book is elegant simplicity, right? So mm. that's something that we've lived by at the Institute for Bible Reading, where you can, you can simplify something, but you can oversimplify it, right? And elegant simplicity is what made Apple, the company Apple, for example, into the giant that it is today, right? So their first marketing brochure in 1977, I believe, said simplicity is the ultimate sophistication. It's Steve Jobs saying he's not, you know, he holds up the first iPod and he doesn't say, hey, this has four gigabytes <laughs> of storage and it can, you know, do this and that. He just says a thousand songs in your pocket. like. 
It's simple, but it's sophisticated at the same time. And that's what we were trying to do with our Reader's Bible, right? Which most mm. of the people listening to this podcast are aware of Immerse the Reading Bible, which is uh, the the edition that we've created that it doesn't just oversimplify. It doesn't just take everything out that we are uh, critiquing over the course of this podcast episode. It introduces sophistication um, and elegance into the format of the Bible mm. in place of kind of the more rigid uh, mechanical exoskeleton of of chapters and verses. Okay, Alex, I'm going to ask you something. So the Bible had a history for 1500 years without the chapter and verse exoskeleton. But now we've had it, right? We've had the modern format of the Bible for 500 years. Yeah. And going back to Andy Crouch's culture making book, he says, culture making that changes quickly tends not to last. Mm. But culture making that takes a longer time are the ones that stick. Mm. So I'm presuming you wrote the Bible reset in order to help produce a new culture in the realm of the Bible. So it can be discouraging, right? 99% of people or more still use primarily a reference Bible. Not that many people yet have a reader's Bible. Kind of what's your vision? What do you think can happen? you know, you took the time and the effort to write this book about a new way forward with the Bible. Um, how quickly do you think it can happen? And do you think it will happen? Yeah, well, we've seen it quickly take root, I would say, in our work at the Institute. I think that there's churches and there's groups that have done this and they people come out of that and say, yeah, I, I can never go back to, to the old ways of doing things. Um, but we also know that normalization takes time, right? Mm. And, you know, this is the the Andy Crouch fanboy podcast, but <laughs> he's got another <laughs> book where he talks about the difference between impact and influence. Like, mm. hey, I would take my book, changing the minds of some teachers and some Sunday school, uh, you know, Sunday school teachers and people that are maybe influencing the next generation, creating their norms for them. I would take that over, you know, some big bestseller list where a whole bunch of people read read it and nothing changes. Like, I would rather mm. start um, influencing rather than impacting uh, some of the culture around Bible engagement. And that's, you know, it, it's going to take some time. I don't, I don't think any of us are uh, under the illusion that this will just be an overnight switch where every pastor in America is going to switch to readers' Bibles and everything gets just overhauled in a year or two. Um, but I think getting enough people trying it and seeing the the um, benefits that it can have in not only their personal reading, but their family or their community's reading of, of the text and, and its influence over their lives. Like, I'll, I, I'll, I'll be OK with a slow, influential mm-hmm. change over time as long as it takes root and takes place. Hey, I'm, really? I'm already old. I don't have time for that that. (laughs) I want to see it. You're exactly right. I mean, I think cultural change that matters um, takes time to take root and then its influence grows and and it it stays around longer if it takes longer to get rooted. I think that's what Andy's saying. Yep. Yeah. at, At the same time, we all handle a device, you know, hundreds of times every day, um, which was Steve Jobs' vision that of a computer in your hands. Right. And Mm -hmm. uh, again, that came through decades of marination, you know, about 
about new technology, but there was a, a point where it broke forth, if you will. Yep. yep. Mm-hmm. And uh, for us to be part of a moment like that, I think we would uh, we would all embrace that. So, Alex, if if people are intrigued by um, by this first section and again, next week, we'll talk about um, the practices uh, we can do better with our practices. And then the third session is we can do better with our understanding uh, of, of what the Bible actually is. It's not a, a, a book of fragmentation, but there actually is a cohesive whole to it. There's mm-hmm. a, there's an engine in it. And so if people want to know more, uh, what, what can they do? Sure. Well, you can, uh, you can check out more about the book at thebiblereset.com. There's links to order at all the different retailers and everything on there. And there's also the first chapter up there that you can you can read for free to to check it out for yourself. Good. And we'll, and we'll have some show notes for, yep. for people to be able to find these things. Glenn, Alex, any last words before we sign off? Just thanks to Alex for taking the time. I know this was this was a huge assignment. You have a young family and I know there's lots of things you could have been doing, but you um, did commit yourself to this. And I think it's just, it's a gift to all of us. It's a gift to the church because um, we want the Bible to find its way in this world and have the impact it's supposed to. So thanks for doing the work. Yeah. yeah. And and I, I just think the timeliness of it is, is very significant. This, this 26 million, um, I'm still trying to get my head around that. Um, mm. You know, can we just say Netflix one or some things like that, but whatever one, it was a decisive win and um, we can do better. Right, Alex? Yeah. 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 And I'll just say thank you guys for trusting me with this project. It's not not every day that a bunch of seasoned veterans say, hey, yeah, that, you know, late 20s guy has has the right stuff to to write a book on our behalf in a lot of ways. So so thanks for the opportunity. I'm glad that it's on the cusp of of getting out there. And I will just also mention that like all of the proceeds from the sales go to benefit the Institute for Bible Reading. So if you appreciate this work and you want to support the ministry of IFBR, go out and buy some for your small group or your church or whatever, read it in a, in a group and then figure out how to, uh, how to implement it in your own contexts. Well, thanks so much for listening and we'll see you on the next one.